0: To support our work at the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show. It's just me again this week, and I'm so excited to be talking to you today about The Red Shoes. This is a 1948 film directed by Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell. If you're unaware, this duo made some of the most stunning works um, in in British film history. Uh, and there's currently a series running at the BFI in London and actually throughout the UK celebrating their work together. It's called Cinema Unbound, The Creative Worlds of Powell and Pressburger. So they're showing films like The Red Shoes, but also Black Narcissus, which you might know is one of my favorites, A Matter of Life and Death, and pretty much everything from their collaborations together. So if you happen to be in the UK, I highly encourage you to check it out. If not, many of their films are, are available on streaming services here. So um, definitely make an effort to find those if you can. But um, when I learned about the series, I was also very excited to learn that a new BFI Film Classics book was being released about the Red Shoes. And not only was it being released, but it was being written by Pamela Hutchinson, who also wrote an excellent book about Pandora's box that I love. So I reached out to her and asked her for an interview. I was lucky enough to be in London for a talk she did with Sally Potter and um, some other curators and writers who gave their perspectives on the red shoes and I've learned literally so much enriching information about this film from her and from that talk basically felt extremely extremely lucky to be able to chat with her about this film and why it's so interesting and why it persists as one of the great um, dance films, horror films, Technicolor films of the 1940s and beyond. And I will also post a link to where you can find her work and also where you can buy the book if you're interested. I think it would make a really good gift. Super quick read, um, but entirely engrossing. So enjoy the interview. And uh, while you're in the description looking for the book, don't forget to give us a rating that helps people find us on uh, podcast apps. So uh, I think that's it for me. Enjoy the interview. See you next week. Great. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for joining me. Um, Thank you for having me. Of course. I'd love to start out by asking you a little bit about your relationship with The Red Shoes and Powell and Pressburger. Um, When did you first see this film and what drew you to actually write about it?
1: So the first time that I saw The Red Shoes was very typical, I'm sure. I was very young, I don't know, eight or so, and it was on on TV in the afternoon and I watched it with my mum. And I, at that point let's be real I'd done the ballet lessons in the church hall because quite a tall child good idea I knew that I was never never going to be a dancer this was never going to take me to Covent Garden but I did become quite enamored of the sort of little bits of ballet that I saw as a little girl you know when the Nutcracker was on TV when you got taken on a school trip so my mum knew she was on a, a good bet showing me this film and I remember She told me at the end of the film, she said, uh, she always had one killer fact about films, my mum. And she said, um, you know, the critics really got very upset about the ending. They thought it was far too gory, but it doesn't look realistic to us at all, does it? And it was that point that I realised that I hadn't really been entirely sure all the way through the film what was real and what wasn't. Um, I quite liked that. You know, I didn't necessarily need to have an answer and understanding for what was going on. I knew that the shoes were somehow enchanted and also somehow just a costume. And that really, really suited my young brain, it probably quite suits my brain now. Um, so, of course, at that point, I had no idea of the fact that, you know, Palin Pressburger had had all these years in the wilderness and they were just recently being reclaimed. You know, that would have been the 80s or so. Um, For me, as a young person getting into film, Powell and Pressburger were always big names, always big names in the world of cinema. You know, every time I started to watch one of those films, I knew that it was an important film. And I couldn't help it. I I fell for them. Um, There's something so romantic and so uh, spiritual and just so alive about their filmmaking. You know, there's something that leaps off the screen that you don't get with other films. So, you know, even a film... That I thought was going to be, I sounded thought I thought it sounded so unpromising. Like I know where I'm going. I thought I don't want to watch a film about a bossy young woman getting her comeuppance. Okay, it's one of my all time favorites. It's the most romantic thing I've ever seen. It's beautiful on every level, uh, and it's the craft and it's the spirit and it's just that indefinable touch of magic. It's magic that they put into their films. And so, I mean, ask me to choose my favorite Palin Pressburger film, and it's *Torture*. But I consistently have plumped for the red shoes, and it's on my greatest films of all time list, and all that kind of thing, because I can't get enough of the look of it, the texture, the 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 way that there's all that color that you feel like you're actually drowning in, that you feel like you're bathing in the color red and the color yellow and the color blue, that that the lights seem to be you lighting effects and make you feel like you've never seen a lighting effect before, you know let alone a bit of slow motion, a little bit of cellophane, suddenly I'm in seventh heaven. So I can't get enough of it, sort of total cinema, uh, sensory overload. So that's always been like a top film for me. I think because it was listed as like one of my greatest films of all time, I was approached by uh, BFI Bloomsbury to write this book because they wanted one to come out to tie in with this big pal and season, Cinema Unbound, and also to mark the 75th anniversary of The Red Shoes. Uh, <laughs> you know it's a bit like being handed those red shoes it's a dream commission but it's quite (laughs) daunting you know I was I thought well this is great how can I I can't say no to writing about the red shoes it's beautiful it's everything it's everything um but also you know I'd written a VFR film classic before and a less well known film because most films are less well known than the red shoes I thought everybody's written on this I'm not the top person in the country to ask about this and I'm and I'm certainly not the first. And I'm not, no way am I going to find out anything new. So how do I begin? So I began with that sort of sense of that thrill of like, I have to say yes to this. It's going to be the most fun project, but I'm terrified.
0: I uh, Yeah, it's a very daunting, beautiful film to approach. But I so you kind of knew in advance that there would be this exhibition in that was like coordinated alongside the release of your film or how did that work? Or your book? I'm not-
1: I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I knew about the exhibition. I can't remember exactly when I first heard about the exhibition, but I knew, So uh, for people who aren't from Britain, um, the BFI, COVID permitting, more or less every sort of autumn winter, do a big blockbuster season. So not just we're going to do a retrospective of X, but it goes wide. And it seemed already at this point that they were going to go wide, wide, wide with Prowl and Presbyterian. So it's gone nationwide. It's gone into cinemas that maybe haven't had those relationships with BFI before. I knew there was this beautiful big book that used lots of archive material edited by Natalie Morris and Claire Smith. I knew that that was in the works. And I think that when I first heard about the exhibition, I thought, oh, how fabulous. I didn't realize it was going to be such an immersive and they were going to have so many artifacts. Of course, at that point, I'd been to the archive, so I thought, you know, (laughs) I knew how gorgeous some of these things were and how strange some of the objects were that were related to the film. So um, as soon as I knew about it, I think I was thinking, I wonder what they're going to put in rather than, you know, but of course I hadn't personally broken into Martin Scorsese's vault and looked at his pair (laughs) of Morishiro's red shoes. So I was the first out of the gate to see those.
0: Right. So did you have a hand in helping to curate that at all, like picking out things that you found interesting in the archive while you were researching?
1: No, not at all. I mean, you know, when I went to look at the Red Cheese archives and Michael Powell archives and so forth, um, the BFI had been trawling through those archives, trawling, that's not the word, they had been going through and making sure they knew everything that was in there. So people like Claire Smith and her colleagues at the BFI had been pulling out all the best things. Of course, they would never say to me Pamela you might want to include this this or you might want to mention (laughs) this or but of course you end up alighting on some of the same things and what they have there is they have all the beautiful or like most of the beautiful Heimheckroft paintings that the Mm. that the ballet is based on Um, and they have uh, yeah they have a lot of the correspondence and of course I, I loved it going into the exhibition because you see the correspondence that gives you a flavour of the fun people had making this film. And of course, diligently, I was making notes of production budgets and um, arguments about casting. So they really chose the sort of more fun aspects because, you know, I had a limited time to get into the archive and I had to get as much like knowledge out of it. So it was really like having a kind of recreation of my research experience, much more uh, pleasant version <laughs> yeah, the time pressure. I remember sort of being on the archive at Beckhamstead and seeing one of the curators come in. Just at the moment, I felt I was drowning in right. material because there really is so much.
0: Right. I Well, I imagine one of the difficulties of writing about this film is getting that background, like the history of dance specifically, um, because I don't know very much about ballet. When I watch the film, I'm like, that's a gorgeous ballet. And I'm not looking at the, you know, maybe the nuances of how uh, people who loved ballet and were there when it was originally released might've seen it. Um, So I guess two questions in that vein. One, did you come into this project with that advanced knowledge about ballet and two um, how did you start thinking about the ballet like when you started researching that history more thoroughly
1: okay so my like superpower when it comes to doing this is that I'm a journalist so the Mm -hmm. things I don't know I'm like right I'm gonna ask someone I'm gonna find out and one of the weird things about doing this project is that it was bad timing for me I already had a research project on for this summer so I was already in that mode of just contacting archives, finding out what I could find, so I considered the the ballet background. What was going on in British ballet in the nineteen forties? I thought it's bound to be interesting. I gave it the most cursory research to begin with, and I was like, no, it's really interesting because in like nineteen thirty nine, they're all saying finally this is the birth of English ballet. Then they have the war, which obviously changed things, and then they have this another relaunch in sort of forty seven, and then the Red Shoes comes out at forty eight, and it basically is set in the present day, but every reference makes it seem like a story from the 1920s when it wasn't English ballet, it was Russian ballet. And, and I thought already there's a tension here. So I went further into that and I read an awful lot. Uh, and I went to the Royal Ballet School archives and I spoke to a woman there who was very helpful, really interesting to talk to people who are entirely on that side. So when you get their opinion of the film or the, the things that they pick out as interesting, you know that that comes entirely from a ballet mind because the ballet audience for this film was important because ballet was quite big in the UK when this film came out the quote in the book from the dance critic Carol Brahms is you know she wrote this I think in Good Housekeeping she said during the war ballet in Britain has become as popular as queuing and spam which is <laughs> I mean, you know, queuing is still really popular in Britain, and spam. <laughs> well, that was a war thing, but you know, probably quite popular still. Uh, you know, and it's quite sort of downbeat. So, if you've got any any preconceptions about what ballet might mean in 1948, you might prepare to slightly adjust them if you really look at how people felt and what people were sensitive about. You know, we still had people using fake names. We still did have some people using English names. We had this sort of self-image of ballet as being quite modern and progressive which in many ways it was but in other ways yet people didn't carry on working after they got married you know uh, even in that de didn't tell people about her marriage you know so I found lots of contradictions and I really thought that this would be really valuable because you can look at the film and you can say they're talking about the romantic conception of the artist you know, that Boris Lermontov is like Sergei Diaghilev, that there's a reference here to Diana Gould. You can tick all these things off. But it was really interesting to see that all the people that made up the corps de ballet, all the people that are dancing and pretending to be flowers or streetwalkers or zombies, they brought their own baggage of what ballet was. And all, anyone who went to see the film loving ballet would have had this particular reaction to it. You know, one thing, I don't know whether it's popular in the US, but there's this incredibly popular children's book in the UK that came out in the 30s called Ballet Shoes. Mm. Just and you know, I mean, I read that book about 85 times when I was a child, and it was really big in the 1930s and encouraged all these girls to get into ballet. There was this resurgence of ballet culture. And so all those little girls who read ballet shoes in the 30s, and Maura Shearer actually posed in adverts to play the lead, the, the lead ballet character in that, um they would have been teenagers and have gone through the trauma of the war when they watched the ballet sh- what they watch red shoes. And you think, what's going on in your mind if you're a young woman who likes to dance when you watch this film? So uh yeah I wanted to I wanted to sort of fill that in because there is not world enough in time to tell you everything that I could tell you one could tell you about what Powell and Pressburg and every single member of the archers was up to. But apart from some really astute criticism of the ballet sequences, there hadn't been much r- r- historical research on the ballet uh, ballet aspect of it. And I thought it was important to say something more than just, you know, Diagolov. <laughs> and well, you had a second question about ballet. Oh, yeah.
0: Sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, kind of jumping off of that, too, I was really surprised because I don't know the history of ballet very well. Um, I was surprised that it was partially based on that relationship between the dancer, Vazlov Nijinsky, and then um, Sergei doggy love if i'm saying that correctly um but it surprised me because the story very obviously had these queer roots that people seem to openly acknowledge when they were um pursuing the film originally at least behind the Mm -hmm. scenes and then of course obviously the final film it changes all of that so it's no longer like a queer relationship but i was wondering if you could talk about um how they might have discussed that at the time when they were putting together this screenplay at, because of that inspiration um, and how some of that kind of still bleeds into the film, even if it's not about that per se.
1: I mean, like queerness can never be con- entirely contained in classic cinema, as you know, right. like the, you have coded characters if you've got um, representations of the Hayes code, you know, you have you have all these kind of traces. We know that Anton Warbrook was gay, and you know some other members of the cast. You know bisexual, gay. You know it, it gets a bit difficult to sort of make um, comments about people's past sexuality. Michael Powell, Emmerich Pressburger, and everybody going to watch this film would have known about the Nijinsky story. Um, it was based on that very, very clearly. And um, Alexander Corder bought the rights to Romola's biography of her husband Nijinsky, which she states very clearly that Diaghilev, the director of the Ballet Russe, and her husband, Vaslav Nijinsky, were lovers. And she goes into detail about what she considers homosexual love to be, that it's maybe something nobler because it isn't tied to creation and procreation and marriage and so forth. You know, which which is all very interesting. So people knew about gay men. Uh, You want to sort of think a little bit like, what does that tell you in your brain if you're an audience in the 1940s? You don't just think, oh, some people are gay, get over it. You might <laughs> have, you know, Well, I mean, some people might have done. But, you know, the sort of values, well, you know... It's kind of a half a life, isn't it? People might say in the 40s you know, you know, you don't not really engaging with the world and all that kind of thing. So you have this myth of a character like Lermatop, like Tegalev, who lives this life of art but nothing else, who's devoted to art and doesn't doesn't engage with human love, who's not sympathetic to young girls getting married or young composers falling in love. And this becomes this kind of rendition, particular rendition of homosexuality, which is the word that Michael Powell used to describe Anton Warbrook's performance. Now, Anton Warbrook, I'm sorry, you know, Michael Powell is not about to out Anton Warbrook, but Mm -hmm. he says that his performance is full of homosexuality, and that's because of the Diaghilev reference. I mean, it's interesting what is considered slightly more acceptable to talk about or to render through a few filters. If it's happened, you know, to people who work in ballet and high art in a different country, you know, there had been there's there's another film. Uh, I saw a really kind of wild and lurid pre-code American film based on the Najinsky diagolev love affair called uh, The Mad Genius, I think with John Barrymore.
0: I haven't seen that.
1: And obviously, you know, that's a mentor kind of relationship. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going, but that's really set in a kind of um, carnival sideshow. So it's like if Todd Browning did the red shoes, you know, it's quite (laughs) good fun. And, you know, Alexander Corder did try several times to make this film, and at one point it was going to have two men in the lead, but that was not that was trailed, and then of course he thought, well, let's put my beautiful young wife, Merle Oberon, in it. Powell and Prasperger were men of the world, right, you know, and obviously they were good friends with Anton Walbrook, if, if mm-hmm. nothing else, you know, they knew about queer life as much as any two straight guys working in the British film industry might, I guess, and <laughs> one of the things they repeatedly do in their films is they make us sympathize with people. We don't think we're going to sympathize with, mm. you know, and Anton Warbrook plays the German in Colonel Blimp, you know, and, uh, and so forth. I mean, obviously he's going to, he even makes us sympathize with the glue man in a country tale a little bit. They're going to, Banco uh, Powell is going to try and make us sympathize with the serial killer at Peeping Tom. So they're going to try and show us something that can't be shown in British cinema you know, a character that is officially abhorrent, you know, homosexuality was illegal in this country. And they're going to have him talk about having a love that other people can't understand and having to repress desire. And they're going to align this with some kind of horrors. And they're just going to leave that out for us. You know, they they challenge the audience and they treat the audience with quite a lot of intelligence. You could, if you were a sheltered young flower in 1948, you could walk out of that cinema just thinking, gosh, Boris really likes ballet. But I <laughs> bet most people didn't. I bet a right. lot of people had an inkling of the kind of guy he was. And, you know, then that's great. Because, you know, if you take a an academic like Andrew Moore, who's written really beautifully on like, the queer side of this film, you know, you have this kind of like gay, bohemian, rootless, marriage-free sort of enclave that is a ballet Lermontov and you can take something really great and fun and empowering from The Red Shoes, despite the fact that obviously, you know, you know, it doesn't end well for anyone. Mm. <laughs> I mean, my hot take, which I sort of hint out in the book, is that Boris Lermontov dies at the end of the film. Ooh, um, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, he, if he doesn't actually die, then his soul leaves his body, like the tragic yeah. figure, you know, and when he's sitting in the box at the end, something leaves him and it is a depiction of a tragic figure's death, whether or not physically that man dies. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: like a dream squandered kind of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. Well, that's interesting that you say like Paul and Pressburger always consider the point of view of someone that you might not find yourself immediately sympathetic with, because I also think about how they are so focused on the female experience in their films, they have so many films with fantastic female leads. Um, And I'm curious if they ever talked about that. Where does that come from? Why were they so interested in, I guess, highlighting those perspectives in their films?
1: It's really interesting. Um, So. People want to talk a lot about, like, Michael Powell's taste in women, but, well, being crass. (laughs)
0: Redheads?
1: (laughs) Redheads, yeah. You know, although so did Technicolor love redheads. Mm. Um, He makes all these comments in his memoir. Honestly, it's nonstop. Look at the legs on her, you know. And you sometimes think where he's sort of slightly playing up to what people want to hear. We know that Emmerich Pressburger really liked to kind of romanticise and idealise women, and that was often a problem for him. Sort of sweet but wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, if you look at their films, they're like run of masterpieces. It starts with blimp and ends with the Red shoes. It's defined by the war years. and so they're sort of blessed and cursed by having to have women in active roles because women are in active roles in those um in those situations. and I think they're in they are trying to f- make sure that none of their characters are boring, you know and so they have these fantastic women. Even from The Spy in Black, they have all these fantastic, malevolent women. You see Googie Withers in one of our aircraft is missing, um, playing this woman who's just in charge of telling all the boys what to do. And one of the things that's really interesting about them is they're so on top of their craft. You know, Michael Powell knows how to shoot things in like always in two different ways, the realistic way and the strange way. And when you look at his women, he knows how to shoot them in the beautiful way and the strange way, and he's really often playing with that. You know, he's saying like, well, you know, do you want to see a woman purse lit driving driving an ambulance, or do you want to also see her in this flashback to the twenties with the most beautiful lighting you've ever seen? Mm-hmm. It's Deborah Carr, and I can make you think that she is basically a one of the blokes, or also your romantic vision. And that know, scene
0: of her fishing in Black Narcissus is like the most gorgeous anyone's ever
1: looked on screen. <laughs> exactly anytime they shoot a woman in front of some water gorgeous just sparkles everything Uh, and so you see how they present women like you see how the women are presented in I know where I'm going like look at Pamela Brown coming in from the hunt with her hounds like it looks like a goddess but also she looks like a wild creature they shoot her from the ground you never do that to your ingenue and so with um with the red shoes, they're fascinated by this idea that the ballerina is this vision of grace and ethereal elegance, that she's just the girl. You know, what's it, um, so guy in the film says, oh, she's just a little president shepherdess, you know, she embodies all these little fairy tale roles. But what do you get Victoria Page saying? Oh, it's hard enough to get off the ground. I won't be imagining anything. You know, it's just hard work. She sweats. She sweats a lot. <laughs> she has a lot a feet are sore she gets really bad tempered in rehearsal you know she goes down to bar class the day after her big triumph and she's got ripped tights so I think that's one of the things I'm really interested in showing is that like, they know women they know that women don't look like movie stars all the time and I think that that definitely fascinated and tickled michael powell and i wonder whether it also was a sort of sense of some kind of difficulty for kraftberger i mean don't want a psychological <laughs> don't want to psychoanalyzer people i don't know just that you see women who walk into their films and they announce i'm here i'm very good at what i do and this is the job i'm going to do whether it's like spreading the word of god fighting the war dancing you know whatever it might be And then you get to see them as both the male like love object and also as this quite terrifying creature with her own will, which, you know, most of us are.
0: (laughs) So true. Um, I
1: I don't know how they were so lucky to know enough interesting women, but, you know, they lived in interesting times.
0: True. Yes, yes. But And that's what I think is so interesting about the red shoes as a symbol. And you talk about this a lot in your book. And something I kind of wanted to throw at you, a little theory or thought that I had, which is that the red shoes seem to function very similarly to red dresses in cinema. So I was thinking a lot about Jezebel or Gone with the Wind, where these women show up in red dresses at times where it would be considered inappropriate. And it sort of represents these women stepping out of bounds, whether that's professional ambition or sexual desire or or what have you. Um, does that make sense to you? Does Does that make sense? Is that?
1: I mean, it's interesting valid? Is it? because you know, um, you can you can run with the idea that the Red Shoes is only about art; it's only right. about the artistic impulse, but it's not. Nothing's ever just about one thing, especially not something as rich as a Powell and Pressburger film. So it is also about the role of women, and you know, there is a thing that you are meant to do: you dance and you dance, and then you get married and you stop like diana gould stopped like a lot of people stopped a chap came to my house to do some work recently and he told me that his mother had been asked to audition for the red shoes and i said what happened and he said well she got married and her husband told her he, she couldn't dance anymore so you know that's what happened <sighs> right so so by putting on the red shoes by choosing dance by choosing to dance when your husband's got his op- opera opening at Covent Garden in particular, she is stepping out of bounds. You're completely right. She's, she's Jezebel. She's Joan Crawford in The Ward Red. You know, wonderful. I love, mm-hmm. love that. I think, you know, um, a scholar I really admire, she was at a talk I did uh, the other day, uh, Rebecca Harrison. She said that watching the film again, it made her think at the end of the film, Vicky Page has got two choices. She can either have a life of domestic labour for her husband or she can work for the man, work for Boris Lermontov. And she said, God, it just struck me that it's basically about, you know, it's about this kind of economic position of the woman. And she's completely right. And also she's completely wrong. It, and as much as, no, but the film's about art. She's got something else that she's thinking about. But it is about that so strongly as well. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching this as a woman in 1948, 1949, you know, you're you're going to recognise that decision in your life, even if you don't have a higher calling of art, you know? And when you and I watch this film I don't want to speak to you but like when women our age watch it we think about our mothers and our grandmothers decisions in life you know and people have you know there's a reason people a lot of people tell me about the fact that their parents love the film or that their mother <laughs> auditioned for it you know people think back to what choices you might have had you know even when I started my first job I'm not I'm not as old as this story says but I'd barely been in my first job for a year Um, I was walking home to the train station with a colleague and she said, oh, what are you doing next week? And I was like, I've got the week off, I'm getting married. And she said, oh, is this your last day at work? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, my God. That was this century. (laughs) 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 So, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. There's a reason they're red and not um, a less contentious colour, you know. It is entirely about stepping out of bounds. It's entirely about um, daring to have something in your life that's bigger than what you're meant to take uh Mm -hmm. what you're meant to put up with and uh, that's one of the reasons why the symbol is so powerful i think
0: well and it also just happens to be probably the best color that Paolo and pressburger um ever filmed (laughs) they were very good at getting that color on screen um
1: and as we said but red is the best
0: Yes. And as they definitely had a thing for redheads. um, The second Deborah Carr leaves, they find another one (laughs) to be their lead. Um, But I'm really impressed by Moira Shear, who was obviously a great dancer, but she's also a great actress, in my opinion. She does a fantastic job in this film. And I'm wondering if they trained her at all as an actress to prepare for this, or if she just kind of came to this raw and was able to achieve what she does.
1: Well, one of the things that I think people will find slightly strange. So she was um she's born in Scotland, but she grew up in Rhodesia and then she'd been acting apparently they spent a lot of time trying to get rid of her Scottish accent, which I sort of <laughs> don't believe was that strong. Um when you think how many times they've made films where no one's got a Scottish accent and they should have one. and um, the way she describes it, she was pretty much just thrown into it. And you can sort of see there are scenes where she's better and worse. There's a certain amount of you can tell that Maurice at some level thinks, well, I can dance ballet, acting cannot be as hard. Because much as she's fantastic in the red shoes, she's streaks ahead better than Beeping Tom, where she does some mm. sort of real acting. One of the good reviews or positive reviews of the film, and the most reviews were positive, um, says, Oh, you know, she's just a nice girl. And it's like Victoria Page is not a nice girl so if you've got the impression that Victoria Page is a nice girl that's your thinking of some of the scenes where Maura Shearer is just sort of being a little bit more polite and nice right. and well-spoken she's always poised she's always confident I mean she's phenomenal in a scene like the one um, where she first meets Boris yeah yeah that's first what meets I Boris. yeah and she says t- you know why do you want to live? And she says, "I am that horror." And you can stop the film there, and you know exactly what's going to happen next if you really think about it. So, so she's got presence, which is really interesting. Apparently, she was. I mean, obviously, you've seen the film; you know she's beautiful. Of course, she's beautiful, and she's beautiful in a very cinematic way, having mm-hmm. that red hair, tan color. But she was beautiful in real life, and I, it's a really hard thing to talk about in some ways. But like, she was distractingly beautiful. People always felt moved to comment on it. She wasn't just interesting. one of the pretty girls in the ballet. She was just like, oh. Oh, so like know. when
0: she was a ballerina, as people yeah. would talk about this already.
1: Yeah. And obviously as a ballerina, her looks were like, slightly difficult. She had to wear a hairnet over her red hair and all that kind of oh, thing. no. You know? <laughs> I, know, I know. And, you know, it's so hard when you're a ballerina. And, you know, we're, we have barely got to the stage where black ballerinas don't wear white tights. Honestly, it's so slow. But it's very much like, oh, well, if Margot Fontaine's the lead dancer, then everyone else should look like her. Not only do they have to look like her, they have to dance like her. You know, it's very much about um, uniformity and things like this. So to say, well, we're just going to have one lead dancer in this film. And she, you know, she only has to dance by herself, really. She doesn't have to dance with Ludmilla Cherino, who's curvaceous and brunette. Don't don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. She can just be a totally separate character. It's completely liberating <laughs> for shira to just be herself. I think she was a phenomenal woman. And mm-hmm. I think she was brave she was a perfectionist, she wanted to broaden her horizons, she more or less arrived in Nice on a very hot day, they'd lost her tutu, she'd had two steak lunches and she threw herself off the balcony gladly I mean she just sort of went for it, she was brave and it's hard for Paola Pressburger fans to know that she was so critical of the film but she was mostly just critical of her own dancing, Uh, she did appreciate that it was a great film but she she was undaunted and Michael does get good performances out of people. Uh, he sort of sometimes talks about, oh, I only do one take, but I, that's not true. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that's true. I mean, he, he knows how to do it in one take because of his quote-unquote quote, he is, but he, I right. think he works at those things.
0: Well, I also have to think, A, she's very critical of her own dancing, which is one thing, but then also the fact that. She seemed to remain committed to dancing after that film came out. I feel like this would have been an opportunity for her to be like, well, movie stardom is very tempting. I could clearly do that. There would be space for me to do it. Why not just abandon dancing altogether? But she didn't want to do that. She basically went back to her company, correct? And she did some films, but with them.
1: But yes. So I mean, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons she was worried about doing the film was she thought that she would lose her position as sad as well. So, you know, that it was already undermined, she already felt, you know, natural troublemaker. Um so and you know, the people in the ballet world maybe didn't think cinema was quite all that, you know. And I feel like she probably um absorbed a lot of that feeling herself. And she thought she could she wanted to just go back and do the do that as well. Um I don't think other film offers really appealed to her. She was very wary of the film world, both Making the Red Shoes had been so grueling. But especially when she got married to Ludovic Kennedy, started having children, realised keeping up with the rigours of being a ballet dancer wasn't possible. She started looking to expand her horizons. so she did films. She did a few films, a lot of them she's a dancer in, um, and she did a lot of straight acting. And she went on and she did lots of lecturing and things like that. When you sort of, you know, I read quite a few interviews with this wonderful woman, and she's always saying things like, I wish I could have done this as well. You know, she wished she could have done other sports, learned other things at school, because once you commit to the ballet life, there's no room for anything else, just like Lermontov says, you know. Uh, So I think in her ideal world, she'd have been writing a novel, riding a horse, acting in a film, and also popping off to to Covent Garden, the reason that the ballet world is, is quite exclusionary in that way is that it takes a lot to commit to that art form, you know, and the standards just get higher and higher and higher. And you know, maybe there is some bad feeling if you go off, you know. I mean, when she came to when they toured Britain, the American audiences wanted to see her instead of Margot Fontaine and that's just a big no, no, like yeah. That's that's not that's not going to make for a happy company. Disrupting so, you know, the hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very disruptive, you know, just like Vicky Page.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess we can't talk about The Red Shoes without talking about the 17-minute ballet in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> so I, I did not know this. And I think this is so fascinating how that whole sequence was, wasn't was really in the screenplay, but it was kind of mapped out in paintings by Hein Heckroth. Um, for those who haven't read it, can you talk a little bit about who he was and um, what his role in bringing that dance to the screen was?
1: So Hein Heckhoff was a painter, basically a surrealist painter. He had designed some ballet in the thirties, I think, at the green room. I was in the twenties, anyway. But you know, he was he was he was a painter. He was a great artist, and they hired him for for the ballet. They had this amazing set designer, veteran of the silent era, Alfred Young. But they liked what Hein Heckhoff was doing, and they gave him this control. I mean, this whole film is about what do you do if you just if you believe in an artist, do you give them the chance. And so there's like 120 paintings that Heinrich did, which is the 17 minute ballet sequence. And, and each day they would film some and they would, remo- like, they had like an animatic of, of those paintings. They would film some live action. It took six weeks to do and take off some of the paintings. And the entire cast and crew would gather to watch this because this was this shared endeavor. And it's really interesting because how do you get the best out of people in an artistic collaboration? Well, you know, Hein Heckworth at some point says in his diary, "I'm basically directing this film. I could direct this film." Goes on set, sees everything else that's happening, slightly changes his mind. You know, there's a, you know, you have to have people who could control the whole thing, but are willing to collaborate. So when Jack Cardiff, great cinematographer, shines his lights on Hein Heckworth sets, and the lights are so bright because they have to pick up all the dancers, they have great depth of field, and then they have to invent an extra bright spotlight that shows up on top of all those lights. Well, then Hein and um, backdrops all look too bright, so he has to repaint them a different colour. It's the most phenomenal amount of work, and that's before the painstaking work of the uh, the dancers dancing on the concrete floor for a minute, 45 seconds at a time, um, and then seeing, you know, that, that their feet were, were not even in shot or that they're being slow motion. So, you know, they get cut out of the picture as far as they're concerned as well. It's about everybody bringing their most egotistical desire to be excellent and also the most uh, humble ability to be cut out of the frame or have their work hidden. You know, half the time, like, Maura Shira is running across the bottom of the frame and she's entirely swamped by the design. It's a beautiful sequence. It's a stunning sequence. It catches your breath. Sometimes if you say to someone, do you want to watch the 17-minute ballet sequence again? You know, if you think, but no, it it, it, it runs it runs past you before you even know it. But it is kind of, you know, an expression of, like, ego and collaboration and back and forth. And Michael Powell is obviously saying, look, I can do 17 minutes with no dialogue. I'm the king of making films. I'm Walt (laughs) Disney. You know, like, in his next film that he makes, which is a black and white story about a a bomb expert, he has a 17-minute sequence of someone defusing a bomb on a beach. He's like, yeah, you will stop and you will watch the filmmaking. There is something that I do that is worth you just admiring. What I do and what my team do, who knows how he felt about that. I'm not really trying to put that word, those words in his mouth. But look <laughs> at the filmmaking. You're not here just to be told a nice story. You're here to to be in the presence of some great film. Oh, wow. I mean, come on. I mean, you can't. you got to love that.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, and the thing that always gets me about it is that there's I feel like there's some kind of irony there where everything is most not most everything is practical effects or practical sets um, Mm -hmm. that feels more unreal than if it were made made today and made entirely out of CGI does that make
1: sense (laughs) there's part of you that's like you know you know that there wasn't a committee of people who said oh maybe we'll change that later yeah or maybe we'll do this Or maybe it could be like that, or like we've still got a few options here, or let's just film it and then see what happens. It was planned, right? It was planned. And I'm not suggesting that CGI artists don't do that. I'm sure lots of CGI work is, Mm -hmm. you know, rigorously structured. In fact, probably works more like this, which is kind of like animation than live action filmmaking does. But you see that someone has painted this and someone has choreographed this, and he clearly has lit it, and someone is dancing it. And it's almost like you get to the point where you're full of all this sort of sensory feeling about how many people worked on this film set. Right. You know, I think you can tell that it's this group endeavour. Just in the way that when you see maybe live theatre, you you don't suspend disbelief in as much as you, you do notice that that person's played eight parts and that I don't believe the set has changed so much. You know, you're you're thinking about the craft of it at the same time as you're watching it. And film often tries to make you not worry about that. It's okay. It's just a giant elevator going up to the sky, like escalator, yeah, sorry. Sure. Like, it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> Whereas The Red Shoes is telling you, like we've shown you the choreographer, the... um conductor the composer the designer all in conference beforehand you feel the work or you feel this is a triumph it's not the busby barkley thing where it's impossible it yeah i mean i mean i love busby barkley but you know it's impossible you know that (laughs) james peckley didn't do that (laughs)
0: like (laughs) well he never i feel like his work is so uh it's not realistic, but it also doesn't really defy reality either. There's something about the red shoes that feels um, so psychological that there's an extra layer on top of it that it's not just, oh, she's not literally seeing a reflection of herself, but it's, it's a reflection that she's kind of imagining. There's like a imagination that goes on top of it, if that makes sense.
1: But that's the thing you don't know. So, the second half of the ballet sequence, for anyone yeah. who hasn't watched it, and I hope you have because I've just given away every ounce of the ending earlier. Um, <laughs> halfway through, it isn't the Ballet of the Red Shoes produced by Ballet Lermontov, It is Vicky Page's psychological turmoil, it is the journey into her subconscious. But, like everything in the Red Shoes, really, at what point does it change? We don't know. So, right. when Vicky's playing the girl and she sees the um, she sees the shoes in the shopkeeper's window. She sees a vision of herself dancing and on point and tutu in the red shoes. Now, this could be done on stage as a kind of Pepper's ghost effect or, a, and you know, in film, it's a superimposition. Is that meant to have been something that happened on stage in Monte Carlo? Or is that Vicky playing the girl, imagining herself dancing? We'll never know. Right. Like, right. There's there's always this extra layer uh, and you're always slightly wondering exactly why these figures are in the ballet, these particular moves are in the ballet, until you get to the point, all the most obvious things where they turn into birds and flowers, and we've already been told that the special audience will imagine that. So, we're like, okay, I'm part of this audience again, you know. And you come back into it at very clear points, like when you see Julian conducting and become the lover, like when you see Boris Lermontov on stage. But yeah, there's a, there's a mystery surrounding it all. Mm.
0: Uh, you also wrote a BFI Classics book about Pandora's Box, which you mentioned earlier, which yeah. I also have and love. Um, mm. Yes.
1: <laughs> I'm very I was... surprised and thrilled, thank you. I Sorry love that movie. Voices.
0: No, I yeah. love that movie so much, so... That's always what I tell people, if you want a gateway into silent film, watch Pandora's Box because it's perfect and uh, feels so modern still. Um, It's for
1: adults, you know? I think people think that silent film was for children, which it's not, but you can see why if you've only seen, you know, the the slapsticks or something. It's very much for adults, that film.
0: Exactly. Um, But I'm wondering if you found any connecting threads between those two projects, or if maybe there were things that um, made you think about that you learned about Pandora's box that made you think about the red shoes in a different way or vice versa.
1: There's two sort of obvious points of similarity between them, um, which is that they both star young women, 21, 22 years old, who dance. Like they're both, they're both, they both star dancers. And you know, these characters dance throughout the film. The the idea in Pandora's Box is that Lulu is a dancer. We more or less get to see her almost dance on stage, but really it's the way that she dances through life, metaphorically and physically. She runs through the rooms and she dances from one partner to the other. She's never quite likely down to have that kind of... um... (laughs) She doesn't settle down. Gosh, that was the most obvious thing to say about Lulu in Pandora's Box. (laughs) She doesn't settle down. No, she doesn't. (laughs) And, you know... There is a, probably a parallel story in that uh, the career of Pabs and particularly the fortune of this film dipped, it didn't, wasn't a success and then it took a, a while after the war it was sort of reclaimed and re-evaluated but that's not really the case even though you could compare that to Pound and Pressburger's sort of falling out of favour The Red Shoes was a hit, it was a perennial hit oh thank God for America, you guys loved it <laughs> uh, you gave it Oscars you put it at the top of your box office we're very delighted Um <laughs> It, there's a similarity too, in a way, if you think about that reception in the US, in that they were both meant to be prestige productions. Of you know, um, but the but Pandora's box was a flop. The most obvious thing, really, is that Michael Powell loved silent cinema. That's mm-hmm. where he started. That's what he fell in love with. You know, he went and watched *You know, Intolerance* three or four times, and you know, silent cinema is. was for him his sort of starting ground and for Pressbreaker too and he says have this absolutely delicious quote about um, my memory goes back to the first films and my ambition goes far ahead of today and there is definitely a sense in a lot of their films that they're pulling back to those old sort of uh, skills with the silent era ratio don't tell, lots of display, lots of um, lots of visual beauty and visual gags, lots of sequences in the red shoes would work in a silent film. Like the mm-hmm. whole opening sequence, it needs like two intertitles. You're fine, like you're great. Um but it's not just like that he's ambitious for the future of what you can do with film with sound and colour, but a lot of people feel like the silent era was cut off too short. Just around the time they made things like Pandora's books, you know? And if you'd have continued you would have been able to, you know, do even better things with silent films, like 17-minute ballet sequences. I mean, the other thing I guess is, you know, thinking about censorship. You know, Michael Powell, I think, pretty much, and maybe Pressburger too, if they were making films now, they'd be making horror films. They'd be making films that were very shocking. We know that Michael Powell kept pushing it with things like Canterbury Tale, People Thought it was too much, the ending of the Red Shoes, too too outrageous peeping tom literally the london critics it should be flushed down the toilet you know terrible terrible and you know pandora's box goes too far too that's why it was such a flop you know because everywhere outside of germany where they had a very high standard for what they wanted from that particular literary adaptation very specific standard everywhere else it was censored so it made no sense you know, right. completely butchered. And so you have this film with this, again, pioneering queer narrative, uh, you know, with this very dark ending, with these hints of incest rendered utterly ridiculous. So um, they were both sort of out of their time when it came to the sort of mores of the audience, I guess, you know, what people could accept. I didn't approach these two books in anything like the same way. I don't think right. that they're like a pair of films. I find them both puzzled, but that's what I think about all the films I love yeah I I you know I don't put them in the same place in my brain but then I realize that you're treading on these little bits of ground it makes you think I suppose about the longer history of cinema when you can combine things like that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah there are so many things in that you mentioned that I think we kind of take for granted now in About the red shoes that were very shocking at the time that I never would have registered as shocking. The fact that they have her sweat, for example, or the fact that um, I think you mentioned someone saying that red was kind of a special effect because color wasn't that common at the time. So the fact that blood was used is kind of saying like it was cheapening the idea of blood to say that it was a special effect.
1: Well, so it's more like um, technical is a special effect, especially in British cinema in the 1940s. -hmm. So technical is a special effect. So um, when you think about special effects and showing them off, you think about dazzling people with their beauty. So let's have a technical ballet. Let's have a technical ball that, you know, like Phantom of the Opera. To have a technical death scene with blood smeared over your leading lady's face. I mean, it's dripping down her face. That I think was probably as shocking as when Gaspar Noé made that 3D film with the 3D ejaculation shot. <laughs> Is that because, climax? No, I didn't see that one. <laughs> uh, no, do you know what? It's I. It's on the list, of course. I'll get to it. <laughs> but you know, because a lot, F1's reaction to that, not F1, a lot of people's reaction to that was 3D films, but not for this, right? You know, 3D. We know what we use 3D for. We know it for swinging telescopes into the front of the frame, maybe a maybe a murder weapon, maybe someone lunging at the camera. But you don't use it for that. It's like, no, that's not what it's for. And I think the same reaction. Technicolour is for beautiful display of maybe a row mm. of dancers. Right. It's not for gore. Or taste. Uh, and of course now we think technicolor, we bleed it into our idea of photographic realism. So how could you do gore without technicolor, we think, but it's yeah, that wasn't the view in Britain in nineteen forty eight. Right. Is The Red
0: Shoes, the Powell and Pressburger film, you'd recommend to someone who hasn't seen any of their films
1: before? I think, I think it probably is. I think it probably is in that I know it's the most popular. Mm. And definitely if someone's got any interest in in performance, in art. But I think if it wasn't this one... I'd probably go for A Matter of Life and Death because it just sort of punches you back every moment. That's just the the expanding universe in A Matter of Life and Death, the way that the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the deep romanticism of it. I think if you can sell people on that, and, and you will, they'll want to see everything else. I don't know. What would you choose?
0: Oh, it's so hard because I love Black Narcissus so much. Yes. I've tried showing that to people, and I think it depends <laughs> on the person. <laughs>
1: You know, sometimes they can
0: really buy in and sometimes they can't. And so maybe that is a bad place to start. But I think The Red Shoes is a good choice for sure.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I love Black narcissists, but you can imagine. Yeah, you can imagine them thinking things about you and your choice.
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. They look at me afterward like I'm crazy, which is probably warranted. But also, I think there's such a cinematic language to black narcissus that's heightened you know melodramatic the whole last five minutes of it are um my favorite thing in the film obviously but i don't think that comes naturally to a lot of people who haven't seen a lot of classic films and i don't think that's quite as present in the red shoes no
1: i think and the darkness and the horror um in, well, it's it's. Called, I showed a clip from Black Narcissus to some teenagers recently. Not just for fun; it was part of a lecture. I'm not just <laughs> hey kids. And, I, and it was a scene where um, David Farrar and Deborah Carr are talking, and Kathleen Byron is just watching in the distance. You keep coming back to her, and I asked them what genre it was, and they're like, "Well, it might be romance." And I think they sort of vaguely got to melodrama. It's like you know, it could be a horror film too because she's really scary, and I think that because F1 speaks with a clipped accent. And because they're nice nuns and because it's an old film, people aren't ready for it to become a horror film. And if, right. if you allow people to walk into Black Narcissus or The Red Shoes saying, well, you know, in many ways it's a horror movie, you'll get a very different reaction from them. I mean, I'm no expert on horror, but I'm, I, I am that horror when I see The Red Shoes. I mean, it clearly <laughs> is. You know, it's about psychological turmoil and it's about blood and gore. It's about pain. And I think it's interesting that pretty much no ballet melodrama has been made since that doesn't have blood blisters and broken toenails and all this kind of pain around the feet. I mean Black Swan took it to a the sure, extreme, yeah. obviously, but even like the turning point and center stage and all that, it's all about sore feet. And, you know, at what point did Ballerina say let's let's put our Let's put our testers on the screen.
0: <laughs> well, uh, that's what's interesting to me too, is why do you think it is ballet that is the dance so closely tied to horror? Because it's not like people are making horror movies about modern dance or like, you know, jazz, <laughs> you know, it, jazz. It, it it usually is ballet. And I, I think that's so curious.
1: Well, I mean, there's all that jazz, Bob Fosse, that's supposed to be That's true. Gets. But I think, no, I think it's true. So the classical repertoire of ballet has got, Ghosts, schools, tragedies galore. It's everything darkness. And I also think about sort of aesthetically. Someone mentioned to me that the the plot of the film made them think of The Phantom of the Opera. And if you look at the silent film of The Phantom of the Opera, which I don't know if you have a chance to see that, you have this wonderful combination of obviously this, this monster in the basement, very superior. you know, this monster lurking at the heart of it all. But when the ballerinas dance through the cellar, wherever the ballerinas go, they look slightly out of time and they're so delicate, covered in the gauze and chiffon and so forth. And there's something about that aesthetic, something so delicate that is almost not quite fully solid human being, whether you're dancing around enchanted swans or a horrifically disfigured opera singer in the basement or, you know, enchanted shoes there's something about the ballerina that just seems to summon up ghosts and specters and and we know it's very controlling as well but yeah if you think of the plots of the classic ballets Giselle's Swan lake it's dark 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 um, yeah
0: the precision too I think is so tempting to break up you know nothing yeah. can be that perfect so you have to disrupt it somehow
1: well you know you sort of think about like what Hitchcock said about blondes and like you know that they they show up the blood so well well doesn't a white tutu show up the blood beautifully well
0: there you go although red shoes kind of hide blood a little bit
1: <laughs> yeah I mean they're they're a great choice if you want to hide them and I'm sure you went to see the exhibition in London and you see mm-hmm. the discoloration on the shoes that Morashira has danced in compared to the pristine pair I mean sweat alone will do that it's 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 you can see the pain of dancing in those shoes. And I mean, as I say in the book, the the fairy tale, the red shoes is far gorier than any of us remember from childhood, like spectacularly gruesome. But yeah, just just to pretend to be Karen is is going to kill your feet. yeah, it's oh, awful.
0: I mean, it is kind of the metaphor is there, right? Where the a ballerina gets her shoes. and then in order to make them work, she has to kind of destroy them first. Yeah. and rip them and, up and make them fit her feet
1: yeah and it's you know it's it's you know um, like helen's head or her night you know it's like cinderella like the forcing your foot into the shoe and then forcing the foot the shoe to fit your foot you know it's it, i mean obviously in the original cinderella they cut off their toes and heels to get into the shoe it's brutal you know i mean and think of these things because it's the most painful thing to think of feet many ways you know and because so many of us uh I've worn shoes that are bad for us. or been tempted to you know wearing heels and so on wearing shoes that are too tight or, or worn out can be like one of the most like distressing periods of your life you know um if you're if you're broke uh, I recently was lucky enough to contribute to a book that was entirely about representations of shoes and footwear on film and the myriad stories that come out of that it's just incredible but for ballerinas, their shoes are their livelihood, and they have this incredibly personal and also violent relationship with them, which is probably how they have a relationship with their craft in many ways. Because it's it's so difficult being a ballerina. The discipline required, and the chances that could knock you out of the game. You know, um uh, slight injury or so forth. I mean, you are literally, you know, you, you're dancing on the edge the whole time.
0: Yeah, it reminded me of that song from a chorus line, what, what I did for love.
1: <laughs> I mean the, the references in the chorus line are lovely. I mean, I love the chorus line. I love a yeah. chorus line and you know, and their references are great, you know, the the dreams of the ballet and so forth. It's interesting that 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 musical was made in the 70s and they interviewed all these um, Broadway dancers to 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 create the screenplay for the, the book for the musical. And the reason the references to the red shoes were in there is because F1 mentioned it. Like because, thirty years later, twenty five years later, it was still the reference point for all those women. And and you know they they weren't they weren't watching it as ten year olds in nineteen forty eight. They're dancing on Broadway in the seventies. You know you think about it like it, it's endured. And now the red shoes, what we think of when we think of red shoes, that's got so many meanings. But we have a whole set of legends and myths and ideas around the red shoes which is mm. why you can get people like Kate Bush making albums and films but just you know the red shoe syndrome there is something about this image that's created by the film I don't think ever already works on a film um writing about a film that I can say you know the cultural importance cannot be overstated you know
0: yeah and, and I, I feel it- like it's it's extended really well like I don't see that kind of dying out or being a phase either I mean the amount that Scorsese still talks about it is so interesting to me I mean he loves Paolo Pressburger obviously and then Thelma as well so that connection I
1: think I mean Another thing that can't be overstated is what Scorsese and Schumacher have done for the legacy. And that's amazing. There's lots of people in this country, like the scholar Ian Christie and a lot of people who worked at the BFI in the 70s and 80s. You know, now they're back at the top of our like cultural remit. I think there were references to them in the, uh, the Olympic, uh, the 2012 Olympic opening. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure there's like a matter of life and death or something like that. They are big. I mean, I remember as a child seeing, I think it was like adverts and comedy sketches that were basically spoofs of the small back room. Not that I'd seen it yet. I didn't understand why there was this joke about people being drunk, diffusing bombs. You know, the Red Shoes obviously is vast and it's vast internationally. I amuse myself by looking at the letterbox reviews, and people think it's from Hollywood. Fine, 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 (laughs) fine. but it's a big, big thing in Britain, obviously, because we 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 had these great run of six incredible films. Not to say everything else Paramount I made wasn't brilliant, but and the Red Shoes is just monumental, you know. Uh, And if I thought it was important before, I have. I mean, it's a small country, but I've been from one end of it to another talking to people about it, and it is huge to people. In fact. Right at the top of the country, I met Maurice son, who wow. just bought a ticket to see it on a Monday night.
0: And you, you hadn't spoken to him before about, wow, how was that? Was it interesting to get his perspective?
1: I mean, I barely got to talk to him, but, you know, um, he just, I was, I did my intro and I left and he said, oh, I just must talk to you. Oh, by the way, I'm Maurice son, which is a strange way to introduce yourself when you think. Uh, how old he must be he didn't tell me her kids you know first name and last name um but really nice man and I was like oh I hope you like the introduction he's like oh it's very nice obviously I only have lovely things to say about Morishira uh but wonderful to see you know, in that screening I know there were there was a young girl who's a ballet dancer who hadn't seen it before and then there's Morishira's son and grandson in the room just watching it and it continues to enthrall people who who have the strongest connection to it and people who are probably about to have the strongest connection to
0: it. Of course, yeah. I'm curious if, has the reaction to it, or have you experienced a different reaction talking with American viewers, for example, than British ones? I'm always curious about, because those film industries are really, I think, tied quite closely, but there are some things that feel very specifically British that don't necessarily um aren't necessarily discussed that way in the u.s if that,
1: you know well i'll be yeah, i mean i suppose i'd be interested to ask you whether you think there's lost in translation issues a lot of people americans have told me my dad went to see it 17 times my my parents went to see it on the date like it's so important um it's interesting to hear from the viewers who went to see it because i've read that people in hollywood were spending a lot of time going how can we how can we do that but better you know they've sort right. of beaten us at our game and getting quite angsty about it which you know as a as a punter you don't you don't um you don't have to worry about i think from what i understand american audiences saw a take on their beloved art form their great ho- hollywood musical a star that was beautiful and brilliant like ginger rogers and so it was this this welcome thing there's always these prestige British films that come over to the US and, you know, I'm sure that they're sort of marketed as being sort of slightly good for you. And so I think (laughs) that the other big one that had gone over that year, that season would have been Laurence Olivier's Hamlet.
0: Right.
1: Which I don't know if you've seen. Yeah. Um, it's quite strange and expressionist and black and white and it's hamlet and it's a tragedy god couldn't you imagine thinking well i you know, i'd rather see the red shoes you only think <laughs> they're like the barbenheimer you know they're the two things in your in yeah. your head compared together you would be like i want to see the one that's more like the wizard of oz and less like a bad time
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so well, yeah i,
1: I mean as an american like tell me like i don't know
0: i mean i feel like it's such a It's hard because the people that I mostly talk to are people who would already know about this and love it. You know what I mean? So it's like, Mm -hmm. of course, there's going to be the Criterion crowd that's like, oh, finally, they've got a matter of life and death on Criterion. Um, So I'm not sure how it kind of meets the average film fan, but I do feel like it's one of those things where you'll see it, you know, how they always do those letterbox top fours, as you were saying, you know, they'll do interviews with people. And I feel like they've been popping up quite a bit in some of those, especially the red shoes.
1: I mean it is a masterpiece and it's also really lovely, easy to love. And it it speaks to young people, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't I don't think you have to be British to love it because I don't think you really care that it's Covent Garden if you don't know Covent Garden, right? Right. Okay. And so much of it uh, isn't
0: even in the UK.
1: It's in France. I mean they're completely international and you know, all their films were very internationalist. They, I mean, obviously, they made one film about an American, um, famously, but you know, generally they don't. You know, that it was mostly sort of pan-European, and you know, there's difficulties with that in the post-war period. Talking about a group of people coming together across Europe and the German and French and Russian, you know, it's it's not easy, right. but they make it seem like this vision of uh, sort of art, art, Bohemia, utopia. I I, I suspect. That perhaps maybe, maybe not now, but maybe in the 40s, there was an idea of Europe as a whole in the American imagination that just, you know, one minute you're in London, the next minute you're on the south of France, you know, you talk to someone in Italian, you know, this is all very, this is the the mixture of everything beautiful, the grand tour in one film. Well, I'm also
0: interested in the idea of people branding Moira Shear as a Ginger Rogers type, because to me, she's very much not a Ginger Rogers type and so it's she 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 simply dances and that's it that's where the similarities end so i i'm i don't know if that's just not really i I don't know a fluency in persona like on behalf of the critics or journalists at the time or why that connection would have been made beyond the fact that they dance and that's literally it
1: i mean it's sort of it. It makes you ask questions about what people were seeing in Ginger Rogers. And I love Ginger Rogers. Right. I mean, so obviously she's really funny. That's not necessarily. She's very down to earth. Very down to that's, that's not Victoria Page. Right. And, you know, even when she's, when her Oscar was for playing this sort of melodramatic role, but someone who was quite down at heel. So there's the class thing that, that Ginger Rogers has, not that. So it makes you think, you know, to remember that people went to see Ginger Rogers because they wanted to see a beautiful dance. And so I think it's that association of perfection, because when you see a Ginger Rogers' routine, um, obviously she was not the best dancer in classic Hollywood, but I mean, pretty damn close. Right. And maybe it's partly the trooper story, you know, those stories about Ginger Rogers who really worked hard than everyone else and wouldn't be daunted. I don't know. But I wonder whether it's just simply a, a weird way of trying to sort of get a handle on it, you know, it's kind of like a Ginger Rogers movie. I mean, it's so far from a Ginger Rogers movie, <laughs> but it's just a way of saying, imagine Ginger Rogers, but she's doing ballet this time, you know. And um, she's way more ambitious than
0: you might anticipate originally.
1: Uh, yeah, and she's not She's not sparking witty banter with her beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange thing, but basically I think what it means is that American audiences thought, we love her, she's great.
0: Yeah, it's Even a compliment.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely a compliment. It was absolutely, I mean, I think in a way of saying like, you know, we would watch her as much as we would watch Cinder Rogers. We like watching dancing and 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 a really compelling story. Um, yeah, it's not a comedy and it's not like a Hollywood musical. You know, the, the, the performance of the show is not this triumph of utopian collective endeavour where everybody gets a bow at the end and it's not uplifting. Right. The, the, the performance is really depressing and really interior. So it, it's the antithesis of the Hollywood musical, but it makes you realise that people take so many more things from a film than just these kind of reductive essentialist messages. You know, they take the spectacle and think, well, I want more of that. And luckily for Hollywood, people did want more of that. And they got, you know, to do the Dream Ballet in America and Paris purely because of this, well, purely, but, you know, largely right. because of this film. But that's and kind so, of,
0: yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's, I almost think that you use Ginger Rogers because there isn't an equivalent yet. Like, because the dancers of the thirties and forties are mostly tap dancers or um, I don't I don't know what the right word, ballroom dancers. Sometimes Ginger Rogers does something like that. Um, yeah. But then after this film and the inspiration that Gene Kelly is taking from it, you get more of like a Sid yeah. or someone who I think is more equivalent
1: yeah so Therese and Leslie Caron and and you Mm -hmm. do get these like ballet sequences and you get you know ballet that looks like ballet and and ballet done by people in leotards because there's something great about the aesthetic of ballet you know even if it's in bar class I think um and you know I suppose also that the class element of the red shoes which was much, much stronger in the screenplay and is so much downplayed in the film and still is so relevant, that probably doesn't bother Americans so much, you know. Not that, not that I think that British audiences were necessarily bothered, but there's no way a British person would compare Victoria Page to Ginger Rogers purely because they'd be like, well, no, Victoria Page is more or less a princess. You know, look right, at her with a right. little coronet. And um, it's worth remembering that Mauro Shearer's nickname was Little King because her surname was King, Shira King, but, you know, wearing a little crown on stage and being so blind. Yeah.
0: Ginger Rogers you know. isn't sitting in a box.
1: <laughs> no, Ginger Rogers is more like Julian Cruster. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, but, you know, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. I mean, I don't think um, Americans are so hung up on that stuff as we are. So, you know, if you see her, she, if she wants to be in the ballet. She has to prove herself, you know, on a wet Wednesday at the Mercury Theatre or whatever it is. Um, and, and she does, you know, she works hard and she gets there. She keeps working hard. And that's probably quite a, a sort of American um, noble ideal. I and mean, good, good, good for America, if so, you
0: know. Yeah, our um, unearned optimism. <laughs> oh, <yeah.
1: laughs> I mean, there wasn't a lot of optimism around in British yeah. cinema. We were very pessimistic, as it, obviously it was a pretty brutal time, but um, realism was the, was the dominant mode. And, you know, Michael Powell's grave says filmmaker and optimist it's one of mm. the main ways why he was you know out of fashion he was against the trend you know at the time because he kept saying well let's do something big let's do something wild let's do something strange and the sort of popular mode in britain was let's do something that's really realistic let's do something that looks exactly like real life even in, even in ballet at the time you know
0: what does that look like a realistic ballet
1: <laughs> i mean you yeah. Urban settings, urban mm. settings. I mean, the ballet that um, Michael Powell first saw Maura Shearer in was called Miracle of the Gorbals. set in like a, like a rough um, inner city district of Glasgow. And actually the, the ballet at the beginning of The Red Shoes in the first draft of the screenplay, it wasn't called Heart of Fire, which sounds very ruse and very romantic. And um, it was called Caledonian Market. Which is a market in Islington, a very sort of a deprived area of a lot. You, you know where Islington is, don't you? Yeah, I do now. Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: <laughs> you know exactly where Caledonian Market is. Um, yeah, so near, near where Arsenal Football Club are based. Um, no references to Arsenal in this film, as sadly,
0: I, sadly. Lots of
1: red. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you would have stories about things that happened in contemporary life in urban settings and you know maybe more sort of drab staging not everything has to be about a princess and an enchanted prince um, but they could do both
0: fabulous um well we're getting we're past the hour mark now so I don't want to take too much of your time but it's been so lovely talking to you um and yeah if there's anything you want to promote any talks coming up or social media handles you want to mention go ahead and let us know
1: well if you find me on that dreadful place that used to be called Twitter or Instagram, I'm Pam Hutch and I'm always letting people know what I'm up to. At the moment, it's all red shoes, red shoes, red shoes. One day it'll be something else. But um and also on Instagram, lots of pictures of my cats. So I can't. Oh my god. Okay, wait, yet. I
0: need to do that. That's I need to see the cats.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um if anybody wants to read the book on the red shoes, it's available from Bloomsbury.com and other booksellers of less high repeat so um <laughs> yeah it's just been really lovely to talk about the red shoes to someone who loves it and thanks so much for such interesting questions and thanks for coming to the event on friday and you know my pleasure. For representing the american fandom of the red shoes
0: <laughs> yes of course as as i said i'm evangelizing and i will put the link to your book in the description of the episode so everybody can easily get it for the holidays it makes a great gift
1: it's it, it- I'm saying it's a great gift. It's got yeah. a lovely front cover. <laughs> it really does. It's very beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. Um obsessed with it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It was a true pleasure. Well, and, thank you for yeah, having me. Yeah, of course.